seeking the help and the blessing of the Lord, let us turn back to the portion of Scripture that we read together in the letter of Paul to the Ephesians and chapter 2. And we can read from the beginning. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The people to whom the apostle wrote this letter, the Ephesians, had already believed the gospel. And as we see in chapter 1, he thanks God for their faith in the Lord Jesus and of their love to all the saints. He reminds them that they have been sealed with the Holy Spirit and therefore they have the earnest of the inheritance within them. But coming to the end of chapter 1, he prays that the eyes of their understanding may be enlightened because he wants them to grasp the greatness of their salvation in Christ. Especially he wants them to grasp the greatness of the power of God towards them as believers. And where does he begin? Well, here in chapter 2, he begins where God finds us. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And you who were dead. That is where he found us. What is true of us is that we were dead. Now death in the word of God can be seen in three ways. And they are all as a consequence of sin. There is natural death, which is the separation of body and soul to which we are all appointed. For it is appointed unto man who wants to die. And then there is spiritual death, which is man's separation from God during his lifetime. And then there is eternal death, which is a separation from God 
for eternity. And this is referred to in the, uh, in the book of Revelation as the second death for all who reject the salvation of God in Jesus Christ. Now here in chapter 2 of his letter to the Ephesians, the apostle is obviously speaking of spiritual death. For in the next verse, uh, verse uh, 2, there he speaks about uh, them walking uh, in a certain way or in a certain direction. To be dead in the sense in which we have it here in chapter 2 is to be without life. It is the opposite of life. And what is life in the biblical sense? Well, the Bible always describes life in terms of our relationship to God. <coughs> in our Lord's Prayer, as recorded for us in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, Jesus says, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So we can say that life is to know God and Jesus Christ as the one who was sent by God. There is no other way that we can know God but through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said to Philip, He who hath seen me has seen the Father. Death then is the opposite. It is to be out of relationship with God. To have life is to know God and Jesus Christ as the one who was sent by God. But I think we can go even further than that. To know life is to trust in Jesus Christ. To have saving faith is to trust in Jesus Christ. There are many who can have a knowledge of God. There are many who believe that God exists. There are many who believe that Jesus came into the world, that he was born of the Virgin Mary. There are many that believe that Jesus went to the cross. Many that believe that he died and was buried. Many believe that he rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Many believe that he shall return. But that is not in itself, saving faith. It is included in saving faith. But there is more in saving faith than to have that knowledge and to believe it. There is the element of trust. We must trust in what we know and what we believe. We must Leave ourselves 
and completely lean upon Jesus Christ. There is no place in saving faith for I. The I must be left aside. We must come to an end of ourselves. And we must totally and absolutely give ourselves over to Jesus Christ and his finished work. The elements of saving faith is knowledge, belief and trust. That's what makes up saving faith. And there are many who has that knowledge. If you are under the gospel, as I'm sure most of you are, from Sabbath to Sabbath, from week to week, you have a knowledge of God and you have a knowledge of God's provision in Christ because that is what is preached to you very faithfully from Sabbath to Sabbath. And I am sure that most of you believe what you hear from your minister from Sabbath to Sabbath. But that will not save you. You must trust, as he exhorts you from Sabbath to Sabbath, to trust in the message that he has given you about Jesus Christ and him crucified. And only when you get rid of self and you lean completely and absolutely upon God's provision in his, in his darling of heaven and his beloved son, Jesus Christ, will you be saved? You can have that knowledge, you may believe it and go to hell. You must trust and only in trusting will you be saved. And that is life. Life eternal. To know God. To know Jesus Christ. And to trust in the revelation that God has given of himself through the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation and to lean and depend upon that alone. What are you depending upon tonight for your salvation? Are you depending upon how good you are, the good deeds that you do, your attendance upon the gospel? Is that what you are leaning upon for your salvation? Well, you will not find salvation. You must lean completely and absolutely on Jesus Christ and his finished work. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says, as he wrote to the church, I don't want to know anything else among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. He is the focus of my preaching. He is the focus of my ways. I don't want to know anything else but Jesus Christ and him crucified because in, that, in him there is life and life eternal. And here the apostle is writing to the Ephesians and he wants them to grasp the greatness of their salvation in Christ. Remember how uh, the writer to the Hebrews says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The greatness of our salvation. Have I and you gra really grasped the greatness of our salvation 
in Christ. How we really grasped the greatness of the power of God towards us as believers. Well, it is to our good to evaluate these things. To see the value that there is in these things. The greatness of our salvation in Christ and the greatness of the power of God towards us who have believed. And here the apostle brings us and he says, this is how you grasp it. Think for a moment where God found you. Think for a moment where you were when he found you. And he says, you were dead, spiritually dead. You were dead in the trespasses and in sins. You were without life, spiritual life. And here he brings before us the characteristics or the features that belongs to those who are dead. In which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There are people who walked according to the course of this world. The word world here is not speaking of the physical world of trees and rivers and so on, but it is speaking about the mindset. The mindset that is in the world. The mindset that is in the world is a mindset that leaves God out of their reckoning and forgets that the individual must face eternity. That's the mindset of the world. Because men by nature is not interested in spiritual things or in spiritual uh, blessings. And probably finds them rather uh, boring when one begins to speak of spiritual things. The natural man finds that very, very boring and very, very tiresome. That's the mindset of the world. The person who here is described for us is only interested in, in the life of, of this world and things that be, can be touched and felt and handled. He is totally ignorant regarding the things of the Spirit. He is totally ignorant of love to God. He is totally ignorant of holiness, of hatred of sin. He is a person who is dead, and he's dead in the trespasses and sin. Romans chapter 5, there we have this person described for, described for us. And in Romans chapter 5, if you read it after, you will see that the way the Apostle Paul there describes this man for us is, a, is as a person who is powerless in matters of salvation. He says, that person is without strength. Powerless in the matters of salvation. He says that the person is ungodly and the person is a sinner. In the same epistle of uh, 
In the Romans in chapter 12, verse 2, the apostle warns believers, he says, not to be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. The apostle John says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Here we are told that this course, this mindset, this system of the world is controlled by the prince of the power of the air. In other words, this is controlled by the devil. Here we are reminded this is not something that was true in the past, but it is something that is presently active. Because here it says, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's not something of the past, but something that is continuous. It is active presently. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The word spirit here means the principle. The principle that works in the children or in the sons of disobedience. Before the quickening work of the Holy Spirit, our lives were controlled by the devil and he worked and does work in the lives of men and women to produce disobedience to God. Now having believed does, that does not mean that we are free from the workings of the devil. We just have uh, to continue reading in this letter itself uh, and uh, come to chapter 6 and there in uh, verse 12 uh, the apostle uh, says or verse 11 he says put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So even after having believed, we are not free from the workings of the devil. But what is it to be the sons of disobedience? Well, I think the apostle sums it up uh, like uh, this for us. Again, going back to the epistle to the Romans, chapter 8, verse 7, the natural mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Now we must remember, of course, that disobedience is not something that begins with us and this world. In fact, we were born as children of disobedience. Here what we have is the doctrine of original sin. That's really what is brought before us here in these first verses of chapter 2. The doctrine of original sin. As given to us in Psalm 51, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. 
Here is David writing that psalm, having, having committed adultery and murder. But he's awakened by the prophet and he examines himself. And he says, how could I do such a thing? Do you yourself sometimes, after you have committed a, a deed of sin, do you ever stand back and say to yourself, how could I have committed such a thing? How could I have done such a thing? Maybe you've sinned and you've promised yourself never again and before you know it, you're back and you've committed the same sin again. And you say, how could I have done such a thing? Well, David says, as scripture says, there is only one answer. It is as steep as this. I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. It was back to original sin. We start from the very moment of our conception with a sinful nature. Well, you listen to the politicians of the day in regard to the social disorder in our society. They think they can solve it with better education, with better housing, economic improvement. Not realizing that the root of the cause of our social disorder in our society is much deeper. It is to be found in the polluted, sinful nature with which we were born. Here we find that uh, the apostle, in uh, verse 3, he turns uh, and he says, Among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. He reminds us that what he has just said there, that it is true of all, it is true of Jew and, and, and Gentile. He, he reminds us of where all this is leading to, bringing the wrath of God uh, upon us. We were the children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This is universal. It is among Jew and Gentile. This is a place where we would still be if God had not intervened in our lives and addressed it us. In verse 3 there, he is showing how trespass and sin, how it, that evil principle that is sin us, how, it, how it, it manifests itself, how the disobedience manifests itself in our lives. Lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, the desires of the body and the mind. The Apostle is, is reminding us that these words, that the, in these words that the whole of man is depraved, total depravity, not absolute. Man can do good things. He's not absolutely depraved, but he is totally depraved. 
the words lust and that we have uh, here this word lust or this word uh, passion of our flesh carrying the desires of the body and uh, the mind they're strong words and he reminds us that all this leads to us being under the wrath of God this is how sin affects our standing before God we are under the condemnation of God we are under the wrath of God we are under the curse of God that's where he finds us that's where we were and if you are tonight without Christ that is where you are now whether that offends you or not uh, that's not uh, uh, my worry at all I'm bringing you the word of God and I'm telling you where the word of God finds you if you are without Christ here tonight. That's where you are. But then you see the apostle turns and these two words are so special. But God. Verse 4. But God. And that makes all the difference. Has these words entered into your own experience? Have you been rejoicing that these words are found but God? You see, this brings before us, it's not the man that we have described up to now that moves towards God. No. It's God that moves towards the man. Isn't that wonderful, my friend? It's not the sinner that moves towards God, but it's God that moves towards the sinner. But God, reminding of the movements of God towards us. This is a theme that uh, is brought before us in chapter 1. And the apostle is never tired of Reminding his readers of the fact that salvation is of God. And neither should I or you be tired of reminding ourselves that our salvation is of God. (coughs) The, The planning of our salvation and the way in which God has brought it about reminds us that our salvation is entirely of God. When we think of salvation, you know, we so often think of ourselves. We so often think of our experience, of what it means to us. And and, and that is important. I'm not saying it's not important. It is important. But we should never forget that salvation begins with God. The plan of salvation began with him. He was the one who moved towards the sinner, not the sinner towards him. From the very beginning, it wasn't Adam and his wife that moved towards God. They ran away. They tried to hide themselves then try to justify themselves. It was God who moved towards them. 
but God. And that's where our assurance stands. Our assurance of salvation stands not in how we feel, but in what God has done. In chapter 1, the apostle pointed, points that out to us, that our salvation is the work of a triune God. It's a work of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And here the apostle continues and reminds us that God is not only merciful, but that he is rich in mercy. Neither does he just simply love, but it is a great love. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. We have a God with us We have a God that dealt with us in the sad condition we were in and a God that has brought us to life. He has brought us to life. He has made us alive or he has quickened us. He has made us alive together, brought us to life in relation to God, brought us into our relationship with God, brought us, restored our relationship with God. He has linked us to Jesus Christ. Everything is linked to Jesus Christ. He has made us alive, or he has quickened us. What, what does that mean? Well, the Holy Spirit comes and brings that per, a person Alive, He quickens that person. The Holy Spirit starts an enlightening process and gives that person an insight into spiritual things. As the Apostle says in another place, now we have received not the spirit of the world, not the principle of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we may know the things that are freely given to us of our God. even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have been made alive together with Christ. He reminds us that All this has happened to us together with Christ. In these verses he constantly repeated, he has constantly repeated this emphasis that, uh, uh, this emphasis of being together with Christ. And here we are faced with another great doctrine. And that is the doctrine of our union with Christ. Being united to Christ. Now we can look at our union with Christ in in two ways. We can look at what we call federal union or covenant union. 
Paul speaks of that, especially in the fifth chapter of his letter to the Romans. Uh, where uh, Christ was constantly regarded by God as the head and representative of his people. Adam uh, was regarded by God as the, as the head and representative of the human race. He was the federal head or the covenant head. God made a covenant with Adam and as our representative he, he sinned against God and he was punished and certain consequences followed. But because Adam was our representative and our head, what happened to Adam also therefore happened to all his prosperity and to us. That's how the Catechism puts it. Now the Bible speaks of Adam as the first uh, man and the first Adam. But it also speaks of Christ. There in the letter to the Corinthians, he, he, he speaks of Christ as the second man and the last Adam. Two heads of humanity. Christ is also the head of a covenant. And what he did also applies to all who are united to him, who are joined to him. We were all in Adam. We wore the consequences of his fall. We were all the children of wrath, even as others. But in our salvation, and this is something we must grasp, it is important for our own comfort to grasp this, that we are now in Christ or with Christ. By faith we are united with Christ. We are in Christ. The other way of looking at our union with Christ is what is called our mystical union or our vital union. The, the, the Bible says that the union between Christ and his people can be compared to the union between the various parts of the body with the whole body, and especially the head. My fingers and your fingers are a vital part of your body. They're not just t things that are tied on. There is a living, organic, vital union so that the blood that flows through my head flows through my fingers. What this means for us in Christ is what happened to Christ happened to us in him. Therefore the apostle can say in another place, I am, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul here says to the Ephesians that we have been raised up with him and that we are now seated in the heavenly places in him so that we can say that we are with Christ. Again, if you allow me to go back to the epistle to the Romans, chapter 5, verse 10, there we read that we are saved by his life. Now I think it's the same, that's the AV translation, and I think it's the same in the ESV, that that's what we say, we shall be saved by his life. But a better translation would be saved in his life. We shall be saved in his life. Before we were outside his life, but now, because we are united to him by faith, we are in the life of Christ. And because we are in the life of Christ, our position is secure. That is our security. We are in Christ. 
We are in the life of Christ. We shall be saved in the life of Christ. I shall get to heaven in the life of Christ. We are in Christ. We are united to Christ. We are in his life. He is the one who died to deal with our sin. He rose again. He is the resurrected Jesus. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And I am in him. I am in him. In chapter 1, the apostle spoke of us having spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And in using this expression, heavenly places there, and here the apostle is using an expression that was very popular in the, in the first century. In Jewish mind, there were three heavens. The first heaven may be described as the place where the clouds are. The second heaven would be where the moon, sun and stars are. And the third heaven is the place where God is. You'll recall how Paul refers to the third heaven in his experience as recorded in Second Corinthians and chapter 12. The place where God manifests his presence and glory. And where the Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrected and glorified body dwells. And where there are also the spirits of just men made perfect. Those who have died in the Lord are with Christ at this moment. So, the apostle reminds us in the first chapter that we all what that all we have and all the blessings that we enjoy as believers comes from Christ, who is there in the heavenly places. So here in the second chapter, he reminds us that spiritually. We are united to Christ in heaven. We are united to Christ in heaven. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We are in his life. I was crucified with him. I was buried with him. I rose again. I ascended to the heavenly places with him in Christ. And that's my security. That's where I am secure. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Another phrase that the apostle continuously used as he speaks of the grace of God. It is all down to the grace of God. Reminding us that we never, ever, and can never merit our own salvation. Again, the emphasis is that our salvation is in God alone, and that the glory of His grace is made known in our salvation. It is the grace of God that made my redemption. It is the grace of God that gave me the forgiveness of my sins. It is through the riches of his grace and the glory of his grace that I have salvation. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Through Christ Jesus. The riches of God's grace is seen and the ransom price that was paid for our redemption, and also in the way that we receive it. We receive it freely. 
It cost him. Doesn't cost us. He paid the ransom price. It's given to us freely. Oh, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. Come by without money and without price. The riches of God's grace is like himself. It is infinite. They cannot be measured. It is immeasurable. It cannot be measured. And here also is God's purpose brought before us regarding his people. Yes, tonight, God's people may be despised and scorned. But the day is coming when the world will have a glorious sight before them as they see all God's people being acquitted before the judgment seat of Christ. And to them will be unfolded the wonder of this present age where God is moving in grace to save poor guilty sinners. As his kindness has been made manifest in his Son, Jesus Christ. In the future day the world will see what God has been doing through the gospel. Well, my dear friend, here is where God finds us. And this is what God has done uh, for us. Where he found us, in the pit where he found us, in the deep pit in which he found us. And we would have remained there. And we would have been lost if it wasn't that he intervened. But God, a gracious God, a compassionate God, a God who delights in mercy. And the wonder of all wonders is this. He passed by the angels that fell and he took hold upon the seed of Adam. He took hold upon me and you and he brought us. He brought us out of that pit. And he put our feet upon that rock, which is Jesus Christ. And if tonight you have that assurance in yourself, if you have let go of yourself, and you have trusted in Christ, and you say, yes, my feet is on that rock, then he's put a new song tonight in your mouth. A song to praise him for his grace, for his mercy, for his loving kindness. He's put a desire in your heart. Desire to grasp the greatness of this salvation in Christ. To grasp the greatness of the power of God towards you as a believer. And that's what the apostle is desirous of. And is that not what you're desirous of yourself as you prepare yourself to go to, go to the Lord's table, to go to the feast that he has prepared for you while you are left in this world, a reminder of the cost of my salvation. A reminder of what God has done in his grace towards me who loved me and gave himself for me. May the Lord bless our thoughts. Let us pray. Eternal and ever blessed Lord, we give thanks to thee.
this night for the greatness of the salvation that thou hast worked out in the Son of thy love for sinners such as we are. We give you thanks, O Lord, that you came to where we were, that you came and that you took us from the pit which we have dug for ourselves, and that thou didst put our feet upon the rock which is Christ, and thou gave a new song in our mouth, to praise and to magnify the riches and the glory of thy grace in Jesus Christ. We ask, O Lord, that thou would continue with thy people here in the days that lie ahead, that thou continue with them, that they may know thy thy blessing upon them as they come together in fellowship, in um, the assembling of themselves together in the uh, place that has been set apart in the church, and as they come together in fellowship uh, in their own homes throughout the district. We pray, Lord, that thy blessing would accompany them. All we ask is in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We shall conclude by singing to the Lord's praise from Psalm 130. Psalm 130. Lord, from the depths to thee I cried, my voice, Lord, do thou hear, and to my supplications voice give an attentive ear. Lord, who shall stand if thou, O Lord, shouldst mark iniquity, but get with thee forgiveness is that fear thou mayest be. We shall sing the whole psalm to the Lord's praise. Psalm 130. Lord, from the depths to thee I cried, my voice, Lord, do thou hear. Yeah.
grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen.